passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, it's great to have you. Uh, I'm Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be for you to be here. Uh, we are in a series where we're studying through the elders' five-year vision for Crosswinds Future. And we're going to in the final week of that series today. And before we get into that study, let me just tell you what is right around the corner. Because we'll be done with the series today. So next week what is happening is a special Sunday called Youth Sunday where the youth group is going to be running everything in the service. Pastor Chris will be preaching. The youth worship team will be up here leading worship. The kids will be your ushers. We're going to involve the kids as much as possible. This is something new we're trying this year. And so we're excited to have the kids in, involved with Youth Sunday. Right after that, guys, do you believe it? We're already into the Christmas season? Wow. That's fast. We're going to do a series leading through going up to the Christmas season called One-on-One -on -one with Christmas. We're just going to go one-on-one -on -one with the different characters in the Christmas story. Uh, one week we're going to look at the, the shepherds. Another week we'll look at the wise men. One week we'll look at Joseph. Another week we'll look at Mary. And guess, what, guess who we get to look at Christmas Eve? One guess. Jesus! There you go. All right. So that's what we're going to be doing. By the way, this is going to be uh, something we do about twice a year. We try to put the pastors into rotation and we move across campuses. So this will be a deal where I'll get a chance to preach here as well as on Spencer. And the Spencer pastors will be up here preaching to you. And this is a great way that we just work together. Usually we do this once in the summer and we do this also at the Christmas season time. So that's what we have to look forward to. Uh, now, before we get into our study this week, because repetition is the mother of all learning, I want to briefly recap the previous weeks in this series, because it's very important for us to know what is the elders' five-year vision and where we're going, and if we just review this a little bit from time to time, hopefully we'll all be able to stay on track, which, which is where we're going. It all begins with our mission. Our mission here at Crosswinds is to reach people with Jesus Christ. Crosswinds is not meant to be a country club for the saints. We are meant to be a hospital for sinners. We want people that God is working in their life to come into these doors and that they would hear the gospel proclaimed, that they would trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they'd be forgiven of their sins, adopted into the family of God, and be born again. That is our mission in this community. That is our mission as a church. And as we look into the elders' five-year vision, which has seven points, and we have an insert in your bulletin that gives you the details of those, I sort of grouped them in a little bit differently just for the idea of trying to put seven points into four weeks. You sort of have to bunch them up a little bit. But the first point was this, and by the way, I'd encourage you to get your outlines out and you can follow along. Right here on the top, uh, the first thing we looked at is this. We want to be, we are for the one who is lost. A church that is for the one. For that, we looked into Luke chapter 15, you'll remember. In Luke chapter 15, there is one long parable, but it's made up of three different stories. 
It's Jesus' only triple parable. Three stories saying the same thing. The stories are the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. All stories make the same point that God cares about lost people. God loves lost people. And if God cares about lost people, we have to care about them too. And as it said in the story of the lost sheep, there is more joy in heaven over one lost person who repents than 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. If we want to be a church that brings great joy to God, which is what we want to do, we have to be a church that cares about lost people and tries to invite them in so they can hear about Jesus Christ and be born again. So that is the, the, the first point of the elders' challenge for Crosswind's future. We want to make a much stronger focus on reaching lost people. The second point of the elders' uh, vision actually comes from points two and point six. I combined those together in that handout. It's this. We want to embrace change to reach people with Jesus. Some churches like to change, to be hip, to be cool, to be trendy, to be swag. That is not crosswinds. We're not trying to be hip and cool. But we are trying to change in any ways we have to to better reach the culture around us with the message of Jesus Christ. Churches are notorious for not wanting to change, while the culture around us is constantly changing. So if we are going to be effective in reaching our culture, we have to change to be able to reach them. It's not comfortable, folks, but it's just effective mission work. That week we looked at 1 Corinthians 9 verses 19 through 23. You remember what we learned in those verses. Paul said that when he was trying to reach the Jews with Jesus, he became a Jew to reach the Jews. He adopted Jewish customs, observed Jewish Sabbaths, Jewish food, uh, food ways. Like he ate only kosher pickles when he was trying to reach the Jews. He didn't want to have cultural barriers between himself and them so he could just more effectively tell them about Jesus. But when he came to the Gentiles, he, had, he ditched all of that um, Jewish culture and he acted just like a gentle, Gentile when he was around them so he could more effectively talk to them about Jesus. But the one that really impacted us that week, you remember, was Timothy. Timothy, the man who was born into a, with a Gentile father, a young man who was not circumcised, a young man who loved Jesus Christ, a young man who was productive in the church and who was going to travel with Paul to be able to share the gospel with Paul. And it became obvious that for the Jews that Timothy would talk to, there was a barrier between him and the Jewish people. The Jewish people would look down on him because Timothy was not circumcised. They would not respect him. They would not listen to him. So as an adult male, before the invention of Novocaine, he chose to be circumcised, not because he had to to be saved, but simply so he could more effectively talk to Jewish people about Jesus Christ. 
that shows you how important it was for Paul and Timothy to be able to tear down any cultural barriers that separated them from lost people to be able to talk to lost people about Jesus. And as a church, we want to do the same thing. An example I gave you last, oh, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, was about social media. Now, folks, I'm a dinosaur. I am not a social media junkie. You're not going to find me on Twitter. You're not going to find me on Facebook. I'm, I'm too busy for those things. And TikTok, for me, is still the sound a clock makes. Not for you younger people. That's a social media platform. But that's a cultural barrier that's grown up between me and my staff and the lost world around us. Because there's a ton of you know, teens, 20-year-olds, they're Snapchatting it, they're TikToking it all over the place. And if we are effectively, going to effectively reach them, we have to start to learn and understand social media. And so we're beginning to do that in the office and trying to think through how we can reach those people with Jesus Christ. We have to learn their culture. That brings us to the third point of the elders' vision that we covered last week, which is we love our neighbors to better reach our neighbors. Technically, that's a representation of point three, four, and five on the seven points of the elders' vision because all those have to do with loving neighbors. And it actually, each one of those points was a concentric circle where each is a widening circle about which neighbors we are going to love. It begins with those neighbors that are nearest us, those people who walk in the door and who are walking right next to us, visitors and newcomers. We want to be a church that has healthy life groups that quickly welcomes visitors and newcomers right into the life groups. We don't want to be a church that says, well, I know you're new around here, but really my friends in my life group, we're closed. We don't enfold anybody in. No, that's a bad neighbor. We're good neighbors. We just say, we welcome you in. Come on over. We're having beef stew tonight. You know, that's the way we do it around here. That's our vision. Warm and welcoming and inviting, and we invite new people that are in the church right into our lives. The second concentric circle we looked at, I believe that was point, um, point five in the elders' vision, was we want to love our neighbors that are right next to us where we live, where we work, and where we play. We believe that God has placed us in the neighborhoods we are for a very specific reason. He gave us the neighbors we have for a very specific reason. We're to be missionaries in our own neighborhood. The people that are right next to us at work, across the cubicle from us, they're there for a specific reason. The people who are next to us in our YMCA class and who are, at, you know, in those kind of play things, the things we do for fun. God has us rubbing shoulders with those people for a reason. They are the missionaries, or we're trying to be missionaries to reach those people. And we want to do a better job of being a church that does good works to them, to create goodwill with them, so we can share the good news with them. That's what the elders' vision for the next five years is for us. Really effective at loving those people who are next to us where we live, work, and play. The last point of the elders' vision, which is an even wider circle, is we want to be a church that effectively loves our community 
in particular by reaching the needs in our community. Around us, in our community, there are needs. They may not be readily apparent to you or apparent to me, but they exist. As a church, we want to be really attentive to those needs, try and see those needs, and meet those needs. That may mean simply trying to uh, work with organizations in our community that are already trying to meet some of those needs. But the problem is, if the only way that you can rub shoulders with the Crossman's family is by walking in these doors, we're not being really good neighbors in our community. We should be out in our community, serving people just to do them good where help is needed. People should run across us first out in the city, not just in the church. Now that's our vision for what we want to foster in the future. So we want to be a church that's on mission, reaching the lost. We want to be a church that is accepting it for change so we can tear down barriers that exist between us and the culture around us and a church that really focuses on loving our neighbors, no matter if they're our closest ones or our farthest ones. That brings us to the final week. That brings us to the, the last point of the elders' vision. I have sort of made it a little short phrase of it, and it's this. We want to be a church that goes big for the gospel. We do. If we're going to go big for anything, it's going to be for the gospel and for reaching people with Jesus. The last point uh, says it this way. The, it says, we ask big things from people because we expect big things from God. What does that mean? Many churches like to play it safe. Many churches do not like to upset the apple carts. Many churches do not like to take risks. That's not what we want to be like. We don't want to be a church that's known for playing it safe. We want to be a church that's known for taking risks, not risks just to take random risks' sake, but big asks, big risks to reach more people with Jesus. We believe that when we take big risks and make big asks to reach more people with Jesus, God will show up in ways that is beyond what we ever expect. Because that's the core of God's heart, isn't it? reaching people with the good news. And when we risk ourselves to do that, God will show us and make that all possible. Now, Crosswinds has a history of making big asks of his people to do that very thing. And God has shown up again and again. As I was pondering this point this week, I thought back to how the whole multi-site church thing started here at Crosswinds. I haven't told this story recently, but I probably should be telling it more often just so you know it. But it's just really amazing how God had his hand in all this stuff and how he showed up in big ways. I can still remember it. I was in my office over there. It was a hot summer day. Air conditioning was on, but I was still sweating. And we had asked an artist to draw a, a map uh, of the area. And it was put on foam core board. So the foam core board was across from my desk. And what the artist had done is they had put Spirit Lake in the center with a, a rough map. And we had them put pins where you guys lived. So all these pins were in Spirit Lake. But then the artist had done a, a dotted line down to Spencer. 
and a smaller map of Spencer, and there was some pins in Spencer, where Spencer people attended here. And then the artists had done a dotted line over to Esterville, and there was pins at a little map of Esterville. Then the artist had drawn a dotted line out to Sibley and Ocheden, and there was some pins in Sibley and Ocheden, people from that area that were driving all the way out here to go to church. And then a dotted line to the north, to the Jackson area that had a little map and pins in it. And at the time, I had been reading a book on multi-site churches and thinking about that. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. And I trust this is really God's hand at work because God guides our thoughts. And I thought, in multi-site churches, they're typically in the city where there's not enough space. So they have to become multiple sites. We're in the country. Our problem is we have too much space like driving 20 miles one way to get to church. Maybe God wants us to become a multi-site church because in the small towns, none of us are ever going to be mega big or mega huge, but maybe we could work together to do together what none of us individually could do alone to reach more people for Jesus Christ. Maybe God's going to give a network of multi-site crosswinds churches working arm in arm, supporting one another, caring for one another, to helping us reach more people for Jesus. And that thought wouldn't leave me. And I remember when I brought it to the elders. It was easy elder meeting to remember. It's one of the few times, I think it was the only time I ever had the elder meeting at my house. It was still the hot summer day. And I shared with the elders the idea of, we look at all these people we have coming up from Spencer. Maybe we could open a campus in Spencer. And I remember what the elders immediately said at that point. I think you're nuts. But you know, if God is behind something, he's going to make it happen. And one by one, God worked in every single one of those elders' lives to change them from thinking it was a silly vision to actually believing in that vision and coming back and said, I think we can do this. And then your elders came to you and they became the champion of that vision for Crosswinds Church. They challenged you to give to that vision. They challenged you to support that vision and you did. It was a big ask and you came through. And here we are a few years later we have a healthy and strong and vibrant campus in Spencer with two full-time paid staff. We have just purchased a large building, as you know, the north end of the North Mall in Spencer for $300,000. We're in the midst of a capital campaign of $640,000. 500 of that would go to completely renovating that facility in Spencer and the remaining to take care of renovations here. And I'm happy to tell you there is $210,000 that has already come in to that capital campaign. That's a big ask. Has God come through in a big way? <clears throat> has God come through in a big way? Yes! Amazing! But see, when it comes to reaching people with the gospel, we want to make big asks of you guys because we believe God will show up in big ways when we do. And he's done that. Now, this brings us to the second half of the sermon. In this part, during this vision series, I typically like to go to a text and like to teach out of the text and see how this text helps us better understand what we're about here as a church. And 
I really wrestled, and Jordan and I wrestled, as to what text to go with this particular um, passage or this theme that we're talking about. And I'll tell you where we ended up. We ended up going to the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is all about reaching people with Jesus. It's about the spread of the gospel. And by the way, in the book of Acts, Acts, you'll see sometimes where there's some really big asks made of people so that gospel will spread. In particular, uh, Jordan and I found ourselves looking at Acts chapter 10. So that is the passage we're going to study this morning. I'd encourage you to get out Acts chapter 10 in your Bibles because we're going to be reading through uh, 43 verses. We'll do things a little differently. Um, when I read through those verses, we'll typically continue to read through those verses. I'm going to stop and just share with you some of my thoughts that came to mind as I was reading through them about reaching people with Jesus. I'm not going to spend a ton of time uh, diving into those thoughts because in the interest of time this morning, but I do think that all of them are applicable. Before we get into Acts chapter 10, you always have to set some context you have to set some background if you're going to understand the significance of what's happening. The book of Acts, as I said, is about the spread of the gospel. The first half of the book of Acts, is the main character is Peter. The second half of the book of Acts, the main character is Paul. And um, we see that the theme of the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 1-8. It says this, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is where the church starts. Judea is the surrounding area of the city. Samaria is a little bit farther north. It's sort of a half-Gentile, half-Jew area. The ends of the earth is the rest of the world. It's the Gentile world. So this is what we see in the book of Acts. As the gospel spreads, people are reached for Jesus in these concentric circles. Peter has a very interesting uh, job he has given. We read this in the book of Matthew. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, you sh shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you come out of a Catholic background, you see, oh, this is Peter being told to be the first pope. I don't agree with that one. I'll tell you that right up front. But I do see that Peter is given a at least metaphorical set of keys. Peter is the one who seems to be uh, the key to the gospel expanding to the different cultural people groups around the world. Peter is the one, for instance, who um, preaches the very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, isn't he? And 3,000 people are saved, and the church is born in Jerusalem. And what we find is the people in Jerusalem who are Christians, they all sort of huddled up, and they didn't want to go out or go anywhere. But we know that the Lord allowed persecution to take place, and so they began to scatter out. Some of them went out to Samaria. Samaria, as I told you, is a half-Jew and a half-Gentile place. I'll give you a little bit of background on them. And that's originally, it's the northern kingdom of Israel. They were conquered by the Assyrians. They were deported away. Of course, there were still some of those Jews that were left behind. The very poor were left in the land. 
the Assyrians brought in another people group called the Cuthites. And those Jews in that land, they intermarried with the Cuthites. So they became like half Jews. And religiously, they became sort of a mixed up bag of Jewish and Gentile teaching. Because of that, the Jews were really not fond of them. They didn't like them because they were not pure Jews. I found this quote from a rabbi to give you an idea of what the Jews thought of the Samaritans. It says, Let no man, no Jew, eat of the bread of the Cuthite, the Samaritans. For he who eats of their bread is as if he was eating swine's flesh. Gives you an idea. They don't like them. But what we find as we get to Acts chapter 8, the, um, there's been persecution in Jerusalem. Philip has gone to the area of Samaria. And he, Philip is sharing about Jesus. And look what happens. Acts chapter 8, 4 through 6. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So all of a sudden you have the Samaritans, whose background is half Jewish, half pagan, hearing about Jesus and becoming Christians. But remember I told you that Peter is the key to the expansion of the gospel to different cultures? While you have the Samaritans being Christians, they're not necessarily brought into the church or accepted by the church, if you want to say it that way, until guess who arrives? Peter. Go a little further in the book of Acts. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. So all of a sudden they get like fully accepted and everything, the Holy Spirit shows up in a powerful way once Peter arrives. Now, the Samaritans becoming um, Christians, that was hard for Peter, but not totally hard. At least they were half Jews. That makes sort of sense. But there's one more ring. Remember, you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's the Gentile world. Peter is going to be the key to unlock the gospel going to the Gentiles. And it's a hard key for him to turn. Jews have been raised to despise Gentiles. For instance, when they would go into the Gentile land and they would walk back to the Jewish land, as soon as they got to the edge of Jewish land, they would stop and they would literally shake the dust off their feet so they wouldn't even bring Gentile dirt into Jewish land. When there was a glass of milk that was given to them, they were to find out who milked the udder. Because if it was a Gentile hand that touched the udder of the cow, they were not allowed to drink that milk. 
where there was a cooking utensil that had been sold to them by a Gentile or touched by a Gentile, they didn't just have to wash it in water, they had to wash it and bring it through the fire to remove the contamination of Gentiles. So are you getting the idea of the big amount of separation there is from Jews and Gentiles at this time? Huge separation. But the gospel needs to go to the, <clears throat> to the Gentile world. And when we get to Acts chapter 10, we find about how the gospel made this bridge. How God brought it about that the first Gentile would be saved. Now, I'm gonna, as I said, I'm going to start reading through this, and I'll stop every once in a while and just give you the simple points of application that as I was reading the text, I wrote down. They're all points of application about our mission of reaching people with Jesus. Begin with verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what, is, what was known as the Italian cohort. Let's stop right there. Here's the point that jumped out to me. God chooses who will receive the gospel. God is the one who is choosing Cornelius to be the first Gentile to be saved. This is so important, folks. When you and I are going out there and trying to tell people in this world about Jesus, it sort of feels like the weight is all on our shoulders, doesn't it? It's not. God has chosen some people in this world that they would ultimately be saved. God is drawing them to himself and God is sending you to them. You're not responsible for making anyone a Christian. Our only responsibility is to simply tell them the message of Jesus. God is the one who takes their heart and draws them to himself. For instance, if you look on the top of your outline, what I did is I um, wrote down what is actually a constant theme in Acts. It says this, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here's the theme you hear coming again and again. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All they did was tell people about Jesus. And the ones that God had chosen ahead of time believed in Jesus. That's, folks, that's our responsibility. Not to make belief, but just present the gospel and Jesus draws them to himself. Verse 2. A little bit more about Cornelius. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. The idea is Cornelius, he's a really good guy. I mean, he prays continually. How many of us pray continually? He gives alms to the poor. That means he gives benevolence. He gives charity. He gives out of his own pocket to help people in need. And it says this, he feared God. Just to give you a little historical background, there's three different types of Jews in the ancient world. There's the excuse me, three different types of Gentiles in the ancient world. The first type of Gentile is a Gentile that just doesn't know God and doesn't have any interest in God. That's like your garden variety Gentile. Then there was a kind of Gentile called a God-fearer. Someone like Cornelius. 
had seen the futility of his pagan background and his pagan ways. He's believed in the God of Israel. He's worshiping the God of Israel, but he's not going all the way. He's like, one thing you're not going to do is you are not going to circumcise me. We're drawing the line there, buddy. So he's a God-fearer. Then there was a third type of Gentile, which was called a proselyte. This proselyte was somebody who uh, gave up their pagan ways, they worshiped the God of Israel, and they were willing to be circumcised, in which case they were fully welcomed into the Jewish faith and family. Cornelius, as I said, is in this middle group, following the God of Israel, but not willing to be circumcised like the rest of the Jews. And here's where a little point of application jumped out to me. By the way, you know, good people are not saved people. Cornelius is a good guy, but yet God is sending Peter so he can know the gospel. He's a good guy, but he's not a saved guy. Folks, you'll meet many good people out there. Many people that might even be better than you. The only way for anyone to be made right with God is through Jesus Christ. It does not matter how good you are, how kind you are, how generous you are. All that means is you may have less sin than others, but you're still struggling with your sin. The only way to be forgiven of our sin is by Jesus. I debated if I should share this illustration, but I'll risk it and share it anyway. A number of years ago, I was preaching on this very point, and I was standing here, and I talked about the fact that good people are not safe people, and one lady literally started yelling at me from the pew, got up, walked out, and never returned. And I talked to the person, they said, you can't say that. My father, he is the goodest, the nicest, the kindest person I know. And I said, and he's also not a Christian. No matter how good and kind he is, apart from Jesus, there is no way to be saved. This is why Cornelius needs to meet Jesus. That's the whole flow of the text. In addition, point three here is God shows mercy to searching hearts. I just think that one of the reasons that God chooses Cornelius to be the first Christian is he was a good guy, but he also had a searching heart, wanting to know more, so God chose to give him more. Jump to point, verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say, Cornelius! Pause here. Another point of observation. God prepares hearts to hear the gospel. We looked at earlier, God chose Cornelius, but now God is preparing Cornelius' heart to hear the gospel. God is doing that all the time. God will choose the people around us that he ultimately wants to be saved, but then he will work in their lives, preparing them to hear the gospel and accept it. In this case, it's a vision. But sometimes, you know how God works? He lets our lives fall apart. He brings us to the end of ourselves. When we're finally broken at the end of our rope, that is when many people call out to God, trust in Jesus Christ and are born again. Isn't that what happens? It's the same storyline. God prepares people to be saved. So when you and I 
are out there and we have the opportunity to talk about Jesus. Remember, some people will talk about Jesus, it'll go like water off a duck's back. It won't penetrate. Other people, God has been preparing their hearts. God has been preparing their lives. We talk about Jesus and they drink it in. They're interested in it. They would say, tell me more. Because God is working ahead of time to repair the gospel to be effective in their life. Folks, we're not doing this all in our own strength. We're doing God's work. Let's continue in the story. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, well, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. A little note that came to mind as I read this. God shares the life-changing gospel through us. Cornelius just spoke to an angel. You would think the angel would just say, by the way, Cornelius, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you how to be saved and just dump all the details out. That's not the way God works. God may use an angel. He may use a vision, but he'll do that to send people to other Christians where they can hear about Jesus. God has chosen that we would be the ones through which people would hear the good news. Angels are not the ones through which people hear the good news. Angels and visions may point people to us, but we're the ones God has chosen to speak. Now, I was thinking about this. I know that if you read in Muslim countries, you hear of, of Muslims who have visions, visions that ultimately leads them to other Christians. In those visions, it doesn't seem like those visions tell them the gospel message, at least not in completion and fully. But those visions drive those Muslims to other Christians where they can hear the gospel message. Once again, angels are not taking away our job. Our job is to just tell people about Jesus. This is how God has chosen to get the gospel message spread. Verse 9. And the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now there's a point here. We see we're switching from Cornelius, and we're now going to switch to Peter in the story. And it just came to mind, just as God chooses who will receive the gospel, doesn't God also choose who will share the gospel? Just as God chose Cornelius to hear, he is now in the process of choosing Peter to speak. I don't know if you realize this, but when you are going out in this world, God has chosen that your mouth would be the one who would articulate the gospel message to some people in this world. Do you realize that responsibility? Isn't that amazing? We are the ones with our lips to simply tell some people about Jesus. And he has planned that. He has chosen that. Let's go ahead and continue the story. And as he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance 
and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending and being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Oh, by no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Let me go ahead and give you an observation. What is going on here? Jesus wants us to give up our cultural distinctives that keep us from sharing the gospel with people who need to hear. When this sheet came down, on it were clean and unclean animals. And as a good Jewish boy, Peter had, I have never eaten an unclean animal. You want to learn more about what animals are clean and unclean? Just simply go to Leviticus chapter 11. The Jews are not allowed to eat camels. They're not allowed to eat rock badgers. They're not allowed to eat rabbits. They're not allowed to eat shellfish. So they can't have lobster. They can't have shrimp. Now, I always wondered, why were these clean and unclean animals there? And what was the purpose of these things? And then I ran across a verse this week that sort of um, helped me understand why God had made these dietary laws. If you're looking for this verse, I'm not going to have time to read it. It's Leviticus chapter 20, verses 25 through 26, if you want to write it in your outline. What it says is the reason God had these dietary laws was to keep his people originally separate from Gentile people. Because if they don't eat together, they won't mix together, and his people will remain holy. But here what we find is God is removing these Jewish dietary restrictions. Because as you get deeper into the New Testament, what you find is all that really matters is Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves Jews. Jesus is the one who saves Gentiles. Jesus is the one who makes anybody and everybody right before God. These dietary restrictions, they're going away, which is why it's hard for Peter to do this. This is why we had this happen three times. Then in verses 17 and 18, now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to, what the, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. I stopped and I wrote this down. God orders the events in our life to steer us where we should go and direct us to the people we need to meet. Peter has this vision immediately followed by these visitors. Do you think that was a chance? God ordered these things together. Folks, God is just as much in charge of ordering your life today. He's ordering your life today to steer you where, you where he wants you to go and to meet the people he wants you to meet. You get up in the morning. You go to turn the keys in your car, and the car won't start. 
and you get frustrated and angry because my day is ruined now. Or maybe God is changing your plans for a reason. Like maybe he's trying to bring you so you meet a mechanic, a mechanic that you need to meet, a mechanic who is desperately searching for Jesus, a mechanic that God has been working in his life or her life or whatever to soften them, and now you have an opportunity to share with them the gospel. That is constantly what is going on in your life. When you see these inconveniences happen, when you see these messes happen, change of plans happens, they are all happening for a reason. It is not a chance. God is steering us to the people he wants us to meet so we can tell them about Jesus. And even if we can't tell them about Jesus, we can do good works around them to soften their hearts to ultimately hear about Jesus. And I hope that is an encouragement to you. The story continues. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests, and the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am a man. Here's the thing I noticed. You know, God uses ordinary people to tell others about Jesus. Peter didn't say, oh, That's right, I'm the Pope. <laughs> Bow down and worship me. He's like, No. Stand up. I am just an ordinary man like you. I'm a blue-collar fisherman. God uses ordinary people, just like you and me, to share the gospel to change lives. The power is not in the person. The power is in the message. Do you realize that? The power to change lives, it's not in a person. It's in the message they carry. So I don't care who you think you are, how big you think you are, or how weak you think you are. Every single one of us that carries the message of Jesus Christ possesses life-changing power, not from us, but from God, by simply sharing the gospel message. What an amazing thought. And he talked with him and went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. 
and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now, what happens is in the space of only nine verses, Peter is going to share the gospel message. This simple gospel message is enough to change Cornelius' life and to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, we're not going to read, but immediately after these verses, you find the Holy Spirit coming on Cornelius and his friends in his house, just like the Holy Spirit came on the Jews or the half-Jews in, in Samaria. Let's look at this, the content of this very simple gospel message that I hope we could also use with our friends. It begins... So Peter opened his mouth and said, Well, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now here's where he begins. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The first part of the gospel message is this. Sharing the gospel begins with a simple presentation of the facts of Jesus' life. Jesus is not a concept. He's not a spirit. He's a real person who came, lived, and died. Then he goes to this. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, whom he had been, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Here's the point. Sharing the gospel includes the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We tell people, number one, that Jesus is a real person who lived, but then he died on the cross, and he died in your place for your sins. But then he rose from the grave to new life. And not only that, but he was witnessed alive. And then we come to the very last part. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The last point is this. Sharing the gospel includes the future of Jesus as our judge and an invitation for him to be your Savior. Isn't that a simple gospel presentation? But immediately after that, when they believed, the Holy Spirit came on them in great power. Folks, as we go to reach people with Jesus in our neighborhoods and in community, please remember, it's just that simple. 
tell, our, tell them that Jesus is a real historical person, number one, that he died on the cross in your place for your sins and he rose to new life, that Jesus will be the one before whom everyone will stand. He will be our judge. But right now he stands and offers to be our Savior. For anyone who would turn, trust, and believe in him to forgive their sins. That's all it takes for people to be born again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look on your word, and we see uh, how to share the gospel, how to reach people with Jesus, we are so thankful that you are working ahead of us, drawing people to yourself like you did to Cornelius. You are softening and preparing them to hear the good news just like you did with Cornelius. And then you've chosen us, us to be the ones who would tell them about Jesus. An angel won't tell them about Jesus. You want us to tell them about Jesus. And all we need to do is present a very simple, clear, and concise gospel message about Jesus, who you are, what you did, and ultimately that you offer to save us. And with that simple gospel message, people can be born again. Now I ask, Father, that we at Crosswinds Church would be men and women who share that gospel message far and wide, beginning here in our own neighborhood. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.